Let me ask you something. What if there was someone out there who kept a log of every single thing you did every minute of the day? That would probably creep you out. Well, that's exactly what happens every time you go online. Your internet provider stores logs of every website you've ever visited and can legally sell this data to anyone. Worse yet, the government can obtain your data via bulk FISA order, even if you're not personally suspected of any crime. That's why I use ExpressVPN. ExpressVPN reroutes your internet connection through their secure servers so your internet provider can't see or log what you do online. Visit expressvpn.com slash mullen right now and find out how you can get three months for free. That's expressvpn.com slash mullen. Protect your data and get three months for free today. Every revolution starts in the minds of the people. Arm yourself for the war of ideas. Take back your life. Take back your liberty. Tom Mullen Talks Freedom. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Tom Mullen Talks Freedom. Today, my guest is Colonel Douglas McGregor. Colonel McGregor is widely known inside the U.S., Europe, Israel, Russia, China, and Korea for both his leadership in the Battle of 73 Easting, the U.S. Army's largest tank battle since World War II, and for his groundbreaking books on military transformation, Breaking the Phalanx, and Transformation Under Fire. Colonel McGregor holds an M.A. in Comparative Politics and a Ph.D. in International Relations from the University of Virginia, and in 2020 was appointed by President Trump to serve as Senior Advisor to the Secretary of Defense, a post he held until President Trump left office. He's been a rare voice of sanity on U.S. foreign policy for years among people with his expertise and experience, most recently on the ongoing conflicts in Ukraine and in the Middle East. Colonel McGregor, welcome to the show. Nice to be here. Uh, The last time that you were here uh, was a little over a year ago. I think it was in September of 2022. And of course, we were talking about the Ukraine war, and I want to get your thoughts on that in a minute. But of course, unfortunately, we have another one that the United States has involved itself in, the U.S. government, uh, at least from a a funding perspective. And um, of course, we're talking about what's going on in the Middle East with Israel and the Palestinians. And before getting to your analysis, I wanted to ask you something. I've I've heard several uh, of your interviews lately but I haven't heard someone ask you this. I wanted to get your ideas or your thoughts or analysis about the state of Israel and its neighbors October 6th and before. And, and I'll say this, a talking point we often hear is Israel is the only democracy in the Middle East, and it's surrounded by countries that hate it and want to destroy it. Yet, after the October 7th attack, there were reports that Egypt had perhaps warned Israel that this was coming. That doesn't seem like the act of a government that's bent on Israel's destruction. What exactly was Israel's relationship with the Muslim countries in the Middle East before October 7th? Well, that's a good question, and it's not uniform in the sense that uh, the relations vary from state to state. 
It is fair to say that if you ask a Muslim anywhere between uh, Morocco and Indonesia uh, what he or she thinks of Israel, they are probably going to tell you it's an illegitimate state that has no business existing in the region. That is widely uh, held opinion inside the Islamic world. The closer you get to Israel, the more hostile people become, obviously. But uh, that, that's generally true. Now, that doesn't necessarily apply to the governments. That, that does not mean the governments love Israel. I don't think any of them do. And I think they regard it as a Trojan horse for our power and influence in the region. And they see Israel as a bully that is ready to strike out and threaten anyone they choose to attack. So there, these are these are views that I think you would probably hear in private. On the other hand, there are lots of people in the elite circles that say, well, perhaps that's true, but there are reasons why we could, under the right circumstances, do business with Israel. And I think that's a fair analysis. Now, <clears throat> you mentioned Egypt. Egypt, of course, 50 years ago, reached agreements with the Israelis that resulted in uh, the Camp David Accords and the subsequent uh, period of 50 years of peace. Now, that doesn't mean the Egyptians were happy that, that Israel treats others, and especially Arabs near to it or inside its own borders, in ways that they don't particularly care for. But Egypt has a, a permanent interest in stability. The Suez Canal is a vital uh, artery. It has to remain open. Egypt depends heavily upon it. Egypt has a very large population, and they, you're talking about 50, 60 million people living on an infrastructure really designed for about 30 or 40 million. And so they, they've got their own set of problems. And Egypt is historically not a warlike country. You know, this is one of the things we, we Americans tend to ignore. We say, well, <clears throat> all these countries in the Middle East are martial or militant or something. That's not true. You know, Egypt historically has not attacked its neighbors. It has been quite contented to deal with its own problems at home. Uh, frankly, that also applies to Iran. Iran does not have a long history of intervening or invading other people's countries. The Turks, on the other hand, have a very long and proud martial history. And are they are excellent soldiers and very proud of it. So <clears throat> each of these countries is very different. And for that reason, they, they tend to have a somewhat nuanced view of Israel, depending upon which country you go to. What's unfortunate at this point <clears throat> is that you're right. The Egyptians do appear to have alerted the Israelis to the possibility of a major assault by Hamas. Why that wasn't taken more seriously or why people didn't react sooner is something the Israelis will have to determine after the war. They had a similar problem in 73, by the way where there were lots of indicators and they were ignored both in Egypt and Syria. And as a result, the war was a very costly one that came close to permanently damaging Israel. <clears throat> right now, the situation is similar, only the region has changed. In other words, people are better educated. They have more capable human capital. There are different technologies at work now uh, that make many of the military establishments, I would say, far more dangerous and powerful than they would have been 50 years ago. But there's something else involved, and I think that's the media. The information now reaches hundreds of millions of people almost instantaneously. 
So you, you go back to 7 October and you look at the barbarity and savagery of that attack, and the entire world is shocked. You had uh, the King of Jordan, uh, General Sisi in Egypt, uh, even Erdogan in Turkey very early on saying, this is outrageous, unacceptable. The problem is we've now had a month of retaliatory bombing, the outright invasion of Gaza, the killing of almost 11,000 Arabs. This sort of thing has cast a very dark shadow over what happened on the 7th of October. So whatever sympathy there existed at that point has receded into the background, and people are now horrified at what Israel is doing. A lot of my audience and, and myself personally would instinctively take the position that, of course, Israel has a right to respond to this attack, that the United States should stay completely out of it. And if the United States stayed completely out of it, Israel would still be able to defend itself, but perhaps would have to temper um, its response so that it doesn't bring the whole Muslim world down around its ears. So I guess it's a two-part question. Would be Number one, is it even true that Israel could defend itself without United States help? And do you think that if the United States did stay out of it, that the Israeli response would be more uh, measured or um, proportional? Well, the answer to the second question is, would it be more measured and proportional is probably yes. On the other hand, we are in it. And the rapid response of the Biden administration by placing our naval power offshore and then op openly committing the use of our naval power in support of Israel particularly in the north, if Hezbollah goes to a full, uh, what I would call, war, war, wartime footing, uh, that's put us squarely in the middle of this. In fact, I would go so far as to say it, the world looks at the United States now <clears throat> and concludes that our support for Israel is unconditional. And the reason for that is not, not because of things that are said, but because of things that are done. For instance, you have President Biden and Secretary of State Blinken who've said, well, we think there should be a ceasefire. That is summarily dis dismissed by President Netanyahu. Nothing changes. Uh, you have people speaking out on the notion of a two-state solution, and that is, frankly speaking, repugnant to President Netanyahu and effectively dismissed out of hand. And then, of course, you have the immediate delivery of all sorts of uh, ammunition uh, from joint direct, uh, in other words, JDAMs, bombs that are laser-guided, uh, precision-guided munitions, rockets, missiles, 155-millimeter uh, uh, artillery ammunition, all of these things, things that we were previously sending to Ukraine have now all been diverted to Israel. And Israel is clearly in charge. Whatever it asks for, it gets. And I think it's fair to say that Mr. Netanyahu currently commands more influence and power on Capitol Hill than President Biden does. Let's be let's be frank. These the Israeli lobby has done its work well. They have done more than cultivate support. They now cultivate obedience. Now, will this last in perpetuity? Well, that's another question. And this is this is what's now surfacing in public debate. Uh, you know, can you justify what you call this <clears throat> disproportionate response? And from the vantage point of the Arabs, they look at this as collective punishment. 
we're destroying the homes and living space of 2.2, 2.3 million Arabs because of what Hamas did. The Israeli perspective is, well, they've hosted Hamas. It's their problem. It's their fault. They have to pay a price. If they're going to host these terrorists, they have to expect this kind of response. I'm not unsympathetic to that position, and I'm someone who wants Israel to survive. But my concern is that whether or not we think that Israeli position is justified, it's producing something that's very dangerous. And that's a region-wide alliance coalescing against Israel and us. So let's stop for for a moment and consider this goes on for another four to six weeks. Why would it go on much longer? Well, if you go to the Warsaw Uprising in 1944 that took place between 1 August and 1 October 1944, where the Polish Home Army, in other words, these are Polish soldiers in Poland who stood up as an organization, moved into Warsaw. They were augmented by large numbers of civilians, decided we're going to rebel against the Germans. And one of the reasons for that was they saw the Soviet armies, which were in relatively close proximity to Warsaw, and thought when the Soviets see that we are rebelling, they will come in, intervene and help us. Well, of course, the Soviets were delighted that the the Nazis would now exterminate the Polish resistance, so they didn't have to do that when they showed up. As it turned out, they still uh, carted off some 2 million people from Eastern Europe that resisted them, including hundreds of thousands of Poles. But at the time, the Soviets viewed this as an inherently positive development and sat and watched. The result was that the Germans had to bring in forces and troops, additional artillery and tanks, and it took them 60 days. They destroyed uh, the uprising. And they not only destroyed the uprising, they flattened Warsaw, literally scorched earth. Then they drove most of the population of Warsaw out. So the same sort of pictures that you're seeing now of tens of thousands of uh, Muslim Arabs from Gaza, and I shouldn't say just Muslims because there are lots of Christians, Orthodox Christians, Roman Catholics, and others mixed in. They're simply being driven out as refugees the way the Poles were. I think the Israelis hope that they won't come back, and they would prefer that they leave permanently. The problem is there's nowhere for them to go. It's an open desert. It's now wintertime. There isn't much water out there. Uh, can they force their way into the Sinai? Well, perhaps they can, but there's not much in the Sinai for them either. In other words, the population really has nowhere to go, and the surrounding Arab states have no means to accommodate them. All those Arab states are actually very fragile in terms of their social uh, structure and the balance of forces inside their their cultures. You know, the the Turks, for instance, already have a million refugees from Palestine. So their view is we we can't take any more. And all you have to do is look at the television and you'll see how many Palestinian refugees are in Great Britain and France and other places. <clears throat> so the idea that somehow you can lift them up and move them at will is unrealistic. So the, the Israelis are in a very terrible position, in my judgment. The more they press ahead, the more danger they create, because now you have the Turks and the Iranians, who historically would have would have sat a great distance away and done nothing. They now actually have the capability to intervene militarily. The Iranians have a very sophisticated air and missile defense program. They have a huge arsenal of missiles, including theater ballistic missiles with a 1,200-mile range. 
they could literally turn Tel Aviv into ruins. Now, the Israeli response to that sort of thing has been, well, if you do that, we will drop a nuclear weapon on you, fired from either a, a submarine, a diesel-electric submarine in the Dolphin class built in Germany uh, at uh, Iran, or we'll deliver it from the air. Well, the problem with that is that there are, there are lots of nuclear weapons that can be had quickly from other sources. For instance, the Turks have good relations with the Pakistanis, and recently in the parliament, Pakistanis stood up and said something that we've known for 20 years is true, and that is that they have nuclear weapons, and they can be made available to the Turks if they want them. The Turks have chosen not to take them up on the offer. But if they end up in a confrontation with the Israelis, I rather suspect they'll take them up on the offer. That means that Israel's use of a nuclear weapon risks uh, a counterattack with nuclear weapons. That's not something they even want to contemplate because Israel is a very small country. You're talking about a little over 6 million Jews and about 1.1 million Arabs living inside Israel's existing national boundaries. Uh, this, is, this is a relatively small country. You can drive from one end to the other in a matter of eight or nine hours. So if they were to be engaged that way, it would be the end of everybody in Israel. So I think the Israelis need to back up and need to rethink their policy because in their effort to impart an object lesson, this is their, their notion of restoring, restoring deterrence. The object lesson says, if you attack us, we will annihilate you. For every one Israeli you kill, you're going to lose 10, 15, 20, or 100. That's not going to work. Uh, and that kind of object lesson will actually backfire. So my argument has been for a very long time, it's time for the president of the United States, because we are truly Israel's only friend. And we're the only ones that they could depend upon in a pinch, let me be frank. Uh, he needs to intervene and, and try to save the Israelis from themselves. But we don't have a president in the White House. We have someone there who's a cutout, you know, a facade. He's not real. And the people that are behind him and pushing him and handing him things to read and telling him what to say, it's a mix of wealthy oligarchs, as the Soviets like to call them, billionaires who are trying to drive policy. And at the same time, uh, you know, the people around him are speaking frequently as though they're commanders in chief. If you listen to uh, Secretary Blinken, he often sounds like the commander in chief. And of course, his statements have all been rejected and he's had the rug pulled out from under him. Let, let me give a quick example of what I consider to be very ominous for your listeners. Uh, not long ago, Anthony Blinken went to Turkey. I mean, why Turkey? Well, 90 million Turks, Sunni Muslim power, the de facto leader of the Sunni Muslim world has been for six, seven, eight hundred years. And he lands and small, insignificant Turkish representatives, along with the American ambassador, show up to meet him. No fanfare, no special, or, you know, welcome party, nothing. He goes and meets uh, subsequently with the Turkish foreign minister, quick grip and grin photographs. He goes in, sees the foreign minister. Meeting is not very lengthy by diplomatic standards. They emerge, there is no joint statement. Uh, nothing is said. But Blinken comes out and says, well, you know, we did good things and, you know, had practical discussions. And it's over. <clears throat> the Iranian foreign minister comes for a visit 
And remember that the Iranians or the Persians and the Turks are historic rivals in the region for hundreds of years, fought many wars. One is Shiite, the other is Sunni. There is no love lost between them. Suddenly, the Iranian foreign minister shows up. He's given the red carpet treatment. He meets with the foreign minister. There, there are subsequently joint statements, but more important, he's ushered in to see President Erdogan. Erdogan would not speak to Blinken. Now, Erdogan has actually met with the leaders of Iran. And the same leaders that met with him in Iran are flying to Riyadh, to Saudi Arabia, to meet with the crown prince. Now, why is this important? Because those are the, are the, are the giant guerrillas militarily in the region. And together, they represent enormous power that could be wielded against us if we chose to intervene. They're the foundation for an enduring regional conflict. It is not in the interest of the United States at this point for a regional conflict to break out and for us to be dragged into it. We are weak. Not only are our war stocks uh, essentially exhausted because of the Ukrainian disaster, Ukraine is in ruins, thanks to us. Over a half a million Ukrainian soldiers are dead. They've run out of manpower. The population is reduced to perhaps half of what it was previously. Everyone who could get out of Ukraine has left. What happens to Ukraine is anybody's guess. It may cease to exist as a nation state. Uh, so why do you think Republicans on the Hill have said, we don't want to send more money to Ukraine? It's money down the black hole of, of zero return on investment. Well, of course, there's no return on investment. Some of the weapons that were sent to Ukraine have ended up in all sorts of places, even in the hands of Hamas. So this, this corrupt country that uh, we decided to use against Russia is dead. In the meantime, we've transformed Russia into what was essentially a modest military power because it had a very small army into a, a guerrilla again. It is probably the leading military establishment in the world. And given its uh, bloodied experience in Ukraine and its dramatic performance, uh, I, I think it's probably the last country I would want to fight as an American soldier. So that's the great success story from Ukraine. Plus the fact, you know, you've got the BRICS and 84 other countries in the world that have joined with Russia and China in their condemnation of us and supported them in, in their efforts to end the Ukrainian conflict. Fast forward into Israel and the Middle East, we have a similar situation developing. My great fear is at the end of all of this, Israel ends up looking like Ukraine, thanks to President Biden and amateur hour in the White House. And fools on the Hill, like uh, Lindsey Graham and others who have no accountability, they can say whatever they want, they can posture anywhere they want, Who's going to hold them accountable? They command nothing, but they can be a menace, and that's what they have become. And then here's the feckless Joe Biden, who's not even completely there most of the time and doesn't even know which end of the stage to step off. He's in no position to rein in Mr. Netanyahu. And somebody said, well, how would you do it? I said, well, if you had someone like Richard Nixon, uh, who was in office, or Eisenhower, uh, perhaps even Reagan, I think they would probably say, look, either declare a ceasefire now, or we withdraw the fleet. We pull our neighbor power out. We will not support you. 
And that would get Mr. Netanyahu's attention because he has 140, 150,000 fighters in Hezbollah, of which about 60 to 70,000 are professional soldiers for all intents and purposes, plus 150,000 rockets, of which 40,000 are precision guided and of a very high quality. He can just, Hezbollah can destroy Haifa in the space of a few hours. And the Israelis have not got a good track record in fighting against Hezbollah. And obviously, Hezbollah is tied to Iran. It is reasonable to assume that if the Israelis tried to turn all of their capability or we joined in with it, that Iran might say, well, I guess it's time to close the Straits of Hormuz. How would you like to pay $200 a barrel for oil? And then, of course, you have Egypt, and the Egyptian population is enraged. They are demanding that General Sisi intervene to protect the people in Gaza. How much longer can he hold out? People in the streets of uh, Cairo are saying, well, Sisi is really a puppet of Israel and the United States. That's, a, that's tough in that part of the world. You don't survive very long when that happens. So what happens when the Suez Canal closes? You know, you have financial Armageddon. You want a you want a deep recession that becomes a depression? That's a good way to get there very quickly. So we don't have an interest in fighting a regional war against all of these powers. And we need to do something to prevent Israel from marching down what I think is a path to suicide. You know, when I look at the map, uh, not having any military expertise i mean israel's a small country gaza just looks like this tiny little place and it no, two things it is first of all shouldn't israel be able to finish this operation somewhat quickly just because of how small the geographic area is is there a lot of resistance coming from hamas um and uh, is there is the other thing that kind of crosses my mind? I know I'm throwing a lot at you, but the um, the fact that it's it's southwest, so it's it's the area at least they're not marching towards Iran or Turkey while they're they're going through Gaza. Um, can we expect this thing to be over anytime soon? Even you know without any other complications arising. Well, that's why I mentioned the uh, <clears throat> Warsaw Uprising. Uh, the German army and the uh, Waffen-SS formations that were with it, uh, they were far more professional, experienced combat troops than the majority of the reservists in the Israeli Defense Force. Uh, the Poles were ferocious and fought courageously for two months until they'd run out of water and food and ammunition. It still took two months, 60 days. My point is that it's now over 30 <clears throat> The Israelis have not penetrated the urban core of Gaza City. They are largely on the periphery. In other words, they've made some penetrations. So you have these peninsulas that jut into the Gaza Strip, but actually going into Gaza City and taking it, seizing it, has not happened. And the Israelis are understandably, and I think reasonably cautious. They've probably lost 350 or more killed at this point. We don't know, and no one's going to release that information. And we think that the figure of 11,000 dead Arabs is probably accurate. Out of the Hamas crowd of, what, 60, 70,000, have they lost 10,000? I, I don't know. Uh, I have no way of knowing. Uh, 
But the preparations that Gaza made are frankly far more impressive and enduring than what the Poles were able to do under German occupation. So I guess my point is this. This could take a lot longer than everybody thinks. And the idea that it would drag on for 60 days means that at some point, uh, President Erdogan in Turkey, who, who would prefer not to become involved, is compelled to become involved. We have naval forces. He's got 100 ships uh, in his naval force. Uh, he's got aircraft on Cyprus, uh, fighters. He's got long-range missiles. He has the largest, reportedly, largest unmanned systems fleet, uh, drone fleet, if you will, in the world. Uh, he, too, has Dolphin-class German submarines, just like the Israelis. Now, how much damage can we do to each other? We haven't even talked about Iran, and I mentioned that earlier. So I guess my point is, if, if you're interested in two things, number one, we want to preserve the integrity and the strength and the influence of the United States in the region. Our influence there is important. We have interests there. Uh, secondly, we want to see the state of Israel survive, period. We don't want to put that in jeopardy. So if you're serious about those two things, you look at the forces emerging, how long do you want to wait? In some ways, to me, it's reminiscent of what happened in Ukraine. You'll recall that separately, the Ukrainian representatives and the Russians had actually reached an agreement and the president himself, Zelensky, said that Ukraine could live with neutrality, which was the core issue, because the Russians will not tolerate our military power on their border, which is exactly what we were doing, building military power aimed at them. Suddenly, we intervened. We used Boris Johnson, the faithful dog from London, representing the faithful ally of the United Kingdom, who came in and said, oh, don't do this, don't do this. You'll get everything. We'll give you everything. The United States will back you. Everybody will back you. You can't lose. Well, that didn't work out very well. Yeah, and I know you've uh, you've got a packed schedule. I want to ask you one question for about an update on Ukraine. And I remember when you were <clears throat> on the last time, and I was kind of searching around for a way to describe the territory that uh, the Russians had um taken control of by by about a year ago by, by about this time last year and i remember you uh, describing it as a banana shaped stretch of land and one tip of the banana was up around kharkiv and the other tip was somewhere around kherson and since then the ukrainians did manage to take those two cities but besides those two cities has anything changed as far as the uh, territory Russia controls, and is anything likely to change? Yes. <clears throat> Kharkov has been evacuated by the Ukrainians. They fully expect to see it fall into Russian hands. The Russians are advancing in the north, the northwest, very rapidly. I think the Russians will continue to advance to uh, capture Kharkov. Once they've secured Kharkov, they're also moving on Zaborizhia. If you look at the map, you cross the river at Zaborizhia, it's a short drive down to Odessa. So I think the end state that the Russians want is control of Odessa. Uh, this enlarged banana, which is now reaching further into the west and to the north, 
and Kharkov because these are historic Russian areas. This is where the Russian speakers live. This was always historically Russian, never Ukrainian. Historic Ukraine was north of a north of the Black Sea, and just uh, you had a you had left and right bank uh, Ukraine, left and right bank Cossacks and so forth. That was further north, and it reached into what is now the border near the border of Russia and part of White Russia, and then Ukraine reaches over to Poland. But it's much further north of Odessa. The area that we're describing was conquered under Catherine the Great, and it was called New Russia. Uh, those are the areas where the Russians lived. And remember, the crux of the problem was that the Russians were being mistreated. And for the last eight years before the war broke out, the Ukrainians had killed 14,000 Russians in Donetsk and Luhansk, the so-called breakaway provinces, which were entirely Russian. All the Russians really wanted was equality before the law for Russian citizens and, and treat them as human beings, stop treating them as the enemy, uh, and end what was really slow ethnic cleansing of eastern Ukraine. Nobody paid attention. Nobody cared. Everybody underestimated the Russians. Here we are. My concern now is that you have a similar attitude. People are saying, oh, come on, these people can't stand up to us. You know, the Israelis, they can do whatever they want, and we're there, and we're going to back them up, and they're not going to challenge us. I have news for everyone. Uh, most of these states are no longer afraid of us. They, they just are not afraid. And the notion that they all shake in their boots every time America is mentioned is just untrue particularly when you talk about a unified front. Uh, I think there are a lot of people spoiling for a fight. You know, I think the Russians are too, and we should be very grateful. This is going to sound terrible, but it's true. We should be very grateful to Mr. Putin that he's exercised tremendous restraint. Because if it were up to the Russian population, everything from where he is now all the way to the Polish border would already be under Russian control. And frankly, they didn't give a damn if it cost uh, 200,000 Russian lives. They wanted to see everybody in Ukraine annihilated. In other words, they very much felt the way the Israelis feel about what happened on 7 October. Well, Putin wouldn't allow that. He's held them back. And he's been under a lot of criticism for that. They say, well, he's pro-Western, which is not entirely untrue. He wants to do business with the West. He wants to get along with the West. We're the ones. They want to destroy him. And similarly, with Israel and its neighbors now, they don't really want a war. But their leaders are looking at these uh, boiling pots of hatred all over the region with 100 million, 200 million Muslims who are infuriated, angry, and humiliated but why? But by what is happening in Gaza. And I don't think they're going to be able to hold everything together much longer before they act. And then we're all in it because, as I say, we're already there. We've already done the joint planning. Yes, we have special forces, special operations forces on the ground in Israel. We do. Uh, we have new air defense forces because of our inadequate air and missile defense capabilities that are being flown into the region. And then you have the carrier battle groups and submarines and everything else. So we're already there. So at some point... The adult in the room in the Oval Office should say, wait a minute, uh, it's time to call a halt. We've gone far enough. We don't need to go any further. But no one is doing that. Because if you do, then you're going to be hammered 
inside the United States by the media and a lot of other people who will insist, well, you must be an anti-Semite. <laughs> Insane. Yeah. Insane. There is, a, let's be frank, there's not, there's no real sympathy in the American population for the Islamic world. You know, we, we've been through lots of things, right or wrong, in the Middle East. So that's not the issue. The issue is, will Israel survive this? And will our power and influence in the region survive this? Not necessarily in that order. Do you uh, think there's any possibility that some kind of sane resolution comes to Ukraine now that Washington's attention is diverted to Israel? Not until governments in Europe change. And I think you're going to see a lot of turnover in, in European governments. Europe is now swinging to the right. Uh, the, the Europeans in general are fed up with the false promises of the left. And when I say the left, that's misleading because, frankly, there hasn't been much right for a very long time in Europe. And now there's a, a, an emerging right because people are saying, wait a minute, it's not in our national interest. It's very fashionable. And I was there in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. It's very fashionable in places like Germany or Austria or Denmark. You would say, oh, well, you know, I'm I'm just a, a European or a world citizen. Okay, fine. How's that working out? Well, it's not. You know, Denmark has interests. Sweden has interests. The Finns have interests. The Germans have interests. Everybody has interests. You, you, herding these cats in one direction inside NATO never worked very well anyway. So NATO is pretty much a paper operation. Why does it still exist? Well, if you can get the United States to pay for your defense while you spend on lavish welfare states, why not let them do it, right? I think those days are coming to an end. We can't afford it, and they don't trust us anymore. I think I'm talking about the electorates. They now have begun to figure out, do we really want a, a major war with the Russians? They finally figured out that contrary to all of the lies that are being told, the Russians aren't coming. <laughs> there was this movie back in the 60s called The Russians Are Coming, you know, about a Russian submarine that, that beaches itself somewhere up in New England off the coast of Maine. It was a comedy, but the point was was taken that, look, they're not coming. And the truth is that no one is coming to the United States to do us harm militarily. Our problems are of our own making. No border security. Tens of millions of people piling into the country about whom we know nothing, who absolutely cannot be Americanized and don't really want to be. Uh, no law enforcement, rising criminality across the country. Come on. This is a nation ready to go to war? It's absurd. We have no army. We're down to about 450,000 men. For a nation our size to have an army of 450,000 that's divided racially, culturally, that is increasingly becoming a, a place where you appoint non-whites to run everything, get rid of the evil white men. You know, thank God we don't have any more white men. We certainly, we never needed them at Midway. We didn't need them at Normandy. We didn't need them at Okinawa, did we? I mean, this is insane, but that's where we are. So what are we going to fight with? Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's hope that uh, that day doesn't come soon. Look, I know you got to run, um, and hopefully you can come back uh, <laughs> several weeks from now, a month from now, and I hope that uh, maybe some sanity has prevailed by then and we're not getting your expertise on actual combat with U.S. troops. 
Um, but uh, in the meantime, I just appreciate you coming on and uh, thanks very much for your expertise. Sure. Thank you. All right, friends, that's going to do it for today. Just a few reminders to stop by TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash support and check out all the ways that you can support my efforts here, including joining my Patreon or my Substack. And if you haven't already, make sure that you go to itsthefedstupid.com to download a copy of my free ebook, It's the Fed Stupid. And as always, if you like the music you've heard here on Tom Mullen Talks Freedom, you can hear more at tommullensings.com. Thanks for listening. The war of ideas has only just begun. Arm yourself with the knowledge you need by heading to TomMullenTalksFreedom.com and subscribing to our email list. And remember, every revolution starts in the minds of the people.